No writer does the life-spanning novel in such a devilishly entertaining yet thought-provoking way as William Boyd, and his new book, The Romantic, is a masterclass in the art. It follows the meandering, fortune-making and fortune-losing story of Cashel Greville Ross, who, sometimes through decisions of his own, sometimes through decisions of others, and sometimes through the kind of happenstance on which lives often turn, travels the world, embarks on adventures, and, crucially, falls in love all across the 19th century. Often passionate, sometimes reckless, always psychologically fascinating, Cashel Greville Ross is both a man of his time and perhaps, in certain ways, a hero for our age. So the romantic is a picaresque romp, but it's also a great deal more. It's a meditation on the manner in which lives are lived and how our perceptions of events change over time. It's an investigation into how much control we have over the kind of person we become, or whether what's bred in the bone always outs in the flesh. And it's a reflection on why some lives come to be considered great and what such an analysis is really worth in the end. It's also one of the most fun reads I've had in a long time, and given the way things have turned over the last few years, that's not to be undervalued. I'm absolutely delighted to say that William Boyd joins me to discuss it today. William, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thanks so much, Adam. Very pleased to be here. Um, I suppose what I'd like to begin with is this idea of the the full-life novel, um, because it's, it's not the first time... Um, uh, you, you've written you've written a novel which does tend to encompass the entire life of the protagonist. So, from uh, from sort of my my recollection of your work, any human heart, the new confessions, Nat Tate, uh, maybe Solo as well, all kind of seem to encompass more or less a sort of a birth till death um, or or near death um, yes. uh, life of, <clears throat> of a protagonist. What is it about telling a story on that scale that appeals to you as a novelist? Well, it's uh, something that I kind of uh, stumbled across. Um, my first whole life novel, as I call them, um, was in was the New Confessions in 1987, mm-hmm. uh, and I wrote this fictional autobiography of a Scottish filmmaker that also is, in a way, a history of cinema. At the same time, his life encompasses the the discovery and the development of cinema. Um, and uh, the reaction to that book was uh, really kind of surprising to me. Uh, people thought it was an autobiography of a, mm-hmm. of a real-life person. And I suddenly saw a potential there that somehow fiction, and it was a total work of fiction, could be made to seem so real that people forgot or readers forgot it was fiction. And, uh, and, and so thus encouraged, I, I embarked on... Uh, thinking of another whole life novel um and i started there was a critic who called bernard levin very eminent british critic who who reviewed the book very well he said you know hypnotized by the autobiographical form i found myself riffling through the pages looking for the photographs and i thought <laughs> aha photographs there you are that's mr <laughs> trick there and so i started collecting photographs thinking i would write another whole life novel and this was, you know, 87 gave way into to, to the 90s. And I actually didn't use photographs in a novel until I wrote my art hoax, Nat Tate, mm-hmm. which is full of photographs and is, is a, a, a fake biography, a, a, a total work of fiction, but is tricked out with all the paraphernalia of a biography. And sure enough, people thought Nat Tate was real, and um, and so and so the 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 hoax was born and was you know, briefly successful, but in <laughs> a way it encouraged me because that that 
that was a, an overt attempt to make fiction seem real and it worked. Mm -hmm. And that's, in a way, that's what propelled me into writing Any Human Heart in, in 2002, which was my next whole life novel. It was written in the form of intimate journals, but it has an index, it has an editorial presence. Again, somehow the format um, allowed me to play with this or blur the frontier between fact and fiction, um, the, the documentary and the completely made up. And I think it, it's, it's in a way, as I've, as I've written more of them, and I've written, now written you know, two other long ones, um, Sweet Caress was after Any Human Heart and now The Romantic. Um, I, um, I think it, the other thing I'm trying to do is show how powerful fiction is and how, mm. in a way... It's the best form for describing the human condition, better than biography, better than autobiography, better than history, journalism, the documentary, reportage. Something about fiction uh, does the human condition better than any art form. And so this kind of caprice almost that made me start writing these novels has become uh, something a bit more, you know, zealous in a way. And I'm And I'm sort of trying to make a point that if we want to understand each other and the, the mysteries that, that are other people, then go and read a novel, read a good novel, of course, and, and you'll get some insight into this adventure we're all on. Mm. I'm, I'm really fascinated by the sort of the, I guess, the, the psychological trick that happens with this kind of uh, this whole life mm. concept in a way, because even if we approach it as a reader, as I did with the romantic with, you know, in the full knowledge that it's a work of fiction, just to have it presented as if it's not does make you approach it in a different way as a reader, despite the fact you could say sort of coldly and rationally that you know yeah. it's a novel and that you know it's a work of fiction. Yes, I think I think it's funny how that um, that happens. And, it, it, you know, I it was only the reaction to uh, the new confessions that made me see the potential in this. And, of course, uh, in the romantic, you have footnotes, who supplies mm -hmm. them, me, there's an author's note. There are <laughs> even little drawings, little sketches, little plans uh, purportedly by Cashel Ross himself. And so very, I mean, I think readers were very happy to be seduced by that kind of a playfulness in a way and to surrender to the idea that he could have been real. And of course, he meets real people. Mm -hmm. uh, in the novel, and he's at present at real historical events. So the whole artifice, in a way, it, it almost effortlessly seduces readers into uh, suspending their disbelief, in a way, mm -hmm. and uh, and buying it, you know, and, and saying, yes, he could have been real, or shall I Google this person that he's meant to have met? Um, uh, 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 you know, the who was the consul in Zanzibar in 1857? Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, it's a real person, and he's mm -hmm. got a he's got a Wikipedia page. You know, so <laughs> is this fiction or what's going on here? But I I think it's very seductive, and I think there are other things that happen as well. But the 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 kind of the, the kind of playful artifice of it is something that I think readers uh, voluntarily succumb to. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'd like to pick up on a lot of things you just said, actually, but just resting with this idea of whole life, just one more for a little bit longer. Um, you said, so your first 
um, sort of sally with this was the 1987, The New Confessions. Um, and of course, that was now we're talking, what, 35 years ago. Yeah. Um, does it change for you as a writer, depending where you are, let's say, on the kind of the arc of your own life, how you approach and how you understand the writing of a whole life of one of your characters? Well, yes, it, it does, um, because when I wrote The New Confessions, I was in my early 30s. I was 34, 35. Here, here am I now, at the grand old age of 70, uh, <laughs> much to my shock. Um, but uh, And, of course, I've lived a lot more uh, since I wrote that novel. I knew what it was like to live up to 35, but I couldn't imagine what it was like to be 50 or 60, or I, I tried to imagine what it was like to be 50, 60, 70. Now I've traversed these decades. I, st I still have to imagine what it's like to be 80. Thank, uh -huh. good, thank goodness. Um, but of course, your own experience of life uh, informs the whole life novel. Mm -hmm. And you see what you, you the author, ha have been through uh, has a kind of bearing on the, the way you describe your characters as he ages in the way you know, I aged. Um, but uh, it's, so there is a, there is a, a difference. Um, obviously, uh, Cash or Ross does things that I've never done, so I have to use my imagination. But there's no doubt at all that uh, writing a whole life novel now at my current age is different from writing um, w the New Confessions when I was, a, you know, just a young man. Um, but it's interesting that the when I, I remember when I wrote Any Human Heart, which is you know I was 50 when I wrote Any Human Heart. Um, the first letter I got was from a, a, a young girl, a teenage girl in Amsterdam, who somehow had read the book. Uh, mm -hmm. And she said, now I know uh, what it's like to be old. I can imagine my own old age. And I think that's another thing about the whole life novel. As a reader, even if you're, even if you're a young person, you see this character age through the novel and mm. in a way you you're on that journey with him or her and um it's it has a funny sort of bearing on your own life i do think the response to the whole life novel is different from the response to an orthodox novel mm -hmm. and i guess it's very important as well the the particular epoch that the the life is uh, unrolling in as well and the one that uh, you, in which you set the romantic is in the essentially the the span of most of the nineteenth century. So, yes. Cashel Greville Ross's dates are seventeen ninety nine to eighteen eighty two, I think. Yes, and this, of course, was an absolutely sort of uh, turbulent and uh, you know, a, a century full of change and full of innovation. Was was that one of the appeals to you about setting a, a novel in this time? That just so much changed over the the span of a normal life. Yes, and in, in a way it was something that, that dawned on me very quickly as I began to kind of construct the novel in my head, that in a way the the lifespan of Cashel is, uh, was as dramatic a change in technology as 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 I have experienced or, or, mm -hmm. or you have experienced that, that, that the the, the monstrous uh, development of technological um, change uh, was as, was overwhelming in the 19th century. You know, Cashel goes from coach and horses to express trains. It you know it took nine months for a letter to go from India to to London in in the 1820s, 
And then by the end of his life, it, there's telegrams and telegraphs. Mm. So it's like, almost like emails. Um, postal service in London in the 1870s, 1860s, there were six or seven postal deliveries a day, which mm-hmm. again is very, you know, you could write to somebody in the morning, say, meet you for, for tea in Hampstead at four o'clock. They'd write back. You choose the vet. It's quite extraordinary how that level of that technological revolution was as as, as like the digital revolution mm-hmm. that we've we've lived through, uh, and you know, not to mention um, you know flushing toilets and uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, lifts and uh, mm-hmm. you know escalators and all that sort of thing. So somebody who lived a long life like Cashel uh, saw the most dramatic transformation mm-hmm. in in his life and his lifestyle and the countries he lived in. Um, he, and, I, and you know, I seed that in, I hope, as subtly as possible, that, that he makes a trip from Oxford to London in the coach and horse. It's advertised as only six hours. In fact, it takes eight hours. At the end of the novel, he's getting the train down to Oxford for lunch, and he's back in London at the, at the end of the day. I mean, that is shocking to a mm. 19th century person. Um, it's a bit like us jumping on a, a, a low-cost airline and going to, to Venice for the price of a pizza. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, it's um, these changes and and so the 19th century in a funny sort of way is very like you know the 20th 21st century mm. and one of the things just connected to that which i think makes it it read so authentically in a way is that these are shocking dramatic changes and yet Cashel lives them in the way that I think we lived these kind of changes, like you and I recording this podcast remotely, yeah. uh, you know, on webcam. Sort of even five years ago, that would have seemed quite a, yes. an impossible, impossible feat. And so it's sort of, you know, Cashel lives them. He almost sort of rolls with these technological punches yeah, in a way that I think we all do. Yeah, you're absolutely right, as as one does. I mean, he early in the novel, he wakes up after a nightmare and he, he wants light. He's in total darkness. So he has to get a a flint and uh, and and set fire to some combustible material mm-hmm. get a taper light a candle and that probably took 2 minutes you mm-hmm. we just reach for a switch and and click the switch um but at the end of his life he's got he's goes into a hotel room and it's electric light so yes. it's quite extraordinary how and and it's true we do just sort of unconsciously or unreflectingly uh, you know, adapt to these technological changes, um, and uh, and let them let our lives conform to them. Mm. Uh, but at the same, we can step back and see how how extraordinary they are. Um, yeah, uh, men on the moon. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm old enough to have flown on Concorde. You know, which that's that's that we've taken a step back since mm, then. You sure. know, <laughs> super, super, supersonic air travel has gone away for 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 passengers, but. I flew to New York in two and a half hours. You know, uh, now it takes wow. six and a half hours. So, so it's it's yeah. it's very interesting. But in fact, we just sort of adapt unthinkingly. Mm. One one small detail, and this isn't going to give too much away, I think. But it was the question of ice as well, which is sort of at the beginning. Yeah. You know, the idea of an ice cool drink just didn't really exist in uh, Cashel's universe. Yes. About midway through the book, you know, the ice from America is being exported all around the world and being used to cool drinks in India. And this is considered an extraordinary innovation. And then towards the end of the book, the, the ice is actually being made on site. And so this kind of yes. this whole industry for transporting ice is is vanishing. 
Yes, yes, like refrigeration arrives uh, at the end of the 19th century. But the ice trade was, uh, again, we, it's that one of these things you stumble across when you're doing your research and you think, wow, what a gift. I'll, I'll, I'll factor that into the novel. <laughs> um, but it's, um, it's true. I mean, they shipped ice all around the world. And it, of course, some of it melted, but by the, the, they insulated it in such a way that ice from frozen lakes in you know in, in Massachusetts was was shipped to you know Calcutta and Bombay to chill your lemonade um, <laughs> so uh, and again it's uh, something that I've realized as I've gone I've written about the recent past or the slightly more distant past in a funny sort of way it's 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 not that different you know mm-hmm. um, you 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 if you had a, a mint julep, you could put a block a block of ice in it to chill it down, you know, which is which we unreflectingly do now. Um, but uh, it's so you know, these these are the nice things to add texture and add mm. a kind of granular detail to the to the world you're trying to create. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Cashew as a character because he's such an extraordinary person to spend time with um, and to sort of to, to see him evolve and to, and to sort of watch his, watch his life take all these kind of extraordinary turns. How much was the, the character of Cashew shaped by all of these things we've just been talking about? The sort of the historical context, the geographical context, I guess the, the social and class context of of his life or did or did the kind of the 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 elements of his character sort of spring to you sort of fully formed and you were more is more a case of sort of dropping him into this time and seeing how he would develop as a result of it yes i mean i think it was it's the latter in a way because very quickly and the the title gives gives the clue mm-hmm. um, very quickly i decided i wanted to write a novel about a character who was a romantic who was mm-hmm. temperamentally and whose whose human nature was romantic, and I was inspired by the nineteenth century French writer Stendhal. Mm. Um, not not much read in in Anglo Saxon literary circles these days, I think, but um, but very read in um, uh, in in France, of course, Certainly, and and yeah. and uh, up there with uh, Flaubert and uh, Victor Hugo and uh, Balzac as one of the great nineteenth century novelists. Stendhal who I became very interested in, and he wrote an extraordinary autobiography called La Vie de Henri Brulard, uh, mm-hmm. which is a fake autobiography, very Boydian, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> full, full, of little, full of little drawings as well, which is why I've got little drawings in my novel as a kind of homage to, to Stendhal. But he described himself as a romantic with a capital R and saw it as a kind of disease. Mm. And uh, he, in a way, cursed his nature because he he was a funny little bloke, not very not very good looking, small, uh, but passionate, and he kept falling in love, and it all ended in tears. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and I think that I that reading about this nature, this person, uh, made me think I'm going to write a novel of, of somebody like that who has the disease of of romanticism in a way, who only listens to his heart and not to his head. Um, it also chimed with, I, I spent eight years at Oxford University failing to complete a, a PhD thesis on Shelley. So I have this 
massive store of knowledge of the early 19th century and the uh, the romantic poets, you know, Keats, Shelley, mm, Byron, Wordsworth, Coleridge. And I've always wanted to recycle that information. And um, so the kind of Stondahl-Shelley fusion, in a way, inspired me. And um, so I I came up with the idea of his nature, mm-hmm. uh, this, 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 this is, is it a blessing, is it a curse? You know, you live intensely, but you're your disappointments are even more intense. Um, and then I plonked him down in, in that era and, uh-huh. and, and, and sent him on his journey. Mm-hmm. And I guess plonked him down in that era when that idea of being a romantic was, in a sense, quite new to, to, to human experience, at least in the sort of the way we, we think about the idea. Like, I remember, I can't remember where I read this now, but many years ago, essentially coming across the sort of the definition of romanticism as where God has been replaced by love, essentially. Yes. And so sort of what, uh, what effect that has on, on humanity when you sort of take rom- what we call romantic love as the sort of the, the central good and the profound good of, of human life. Yes, and and I think it, it's it was a slow burn. I mean, you can see even in Jean Jacques Rousseau mm. and uh, La Nouvelle Eloise, um, he ch- he changed the vocabulary of of, of love. Um, people didn't speak about their feelings in the way that Rousseau had his characters speak about them in La Nouvelle Eloise. Mm. And then you get ideas of the sublime and the, the the role of nature in and and you know again sort of replacing god you know the the alps were more impressive mm-hmm. than ideas of god and then you got the romantic poets where there's a kind of you know hotline to your feelings as it yes. to put it very <laughs> to put it very simply and um and that was celebrated and so there there was a change in human psychology i think that took place in the late 18th early 19th century and and to a degree we we still live with that you know mm-hmm. it's uh, it's absolutely um something that anybody in the 22nd century can tw- uh, 21st century rather can can recognize this 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 emphasis on 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 human emotions and human feelings as some kind of touchstone of authenticity mm-hmm. and veracity mm-hmm you mentioned uh, Stondel as a sort of a, a source of inspiration for this. And I must admit, I did think of um, it's uh, Julien Sorel, isn't it? The yes. protagonist of The Red and the Black yes. as a sort of a, um, a sort of a living as in a in certain sense, a parallel life to uh, Cacho, particularly in this idea of him being something of what, you know, the French might call an arriviste, you yes. know, somebody who kind of came from very humble backgrounds yes. and manages to find his way into um into high society. So, yes. How how crucial was that to the the character of Cashel that he not be born from a well I mean I we won't get particularly yeah. into his background because it's a bit complicated but yes. essentially born into a sort of a a uh, a working class family. Yes. Well it it's it, it, it's important because he then discovers it's a lie you know oh. <laughs> and that he and that everything he thought about himself is wrong and he's been lied to by his mother and father and this provokes the first romantic revolution in his life and he runs away from home and joins the army mm-hmm. you know and 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 and, and in, a, in another sense sets the pattern for his life that these these this impulsiveness this this you know listening to your heart not your head uh, uh reaction um be, you know to dominates his life to you know deleterious and advantageous <laughs> way, ways but it, it's um 
Um, it, it, he's he is a sort of intellectual mm-hmm. because he he becomes a writer, but he's he's many things. So he's not a, he's a sort of everyman in a way. I think he I didn't I would never have wanted to make him an aristocrat, and I wouldn't have wanted to make him a, a peasant either. Mm-hmm. But he's a he's a very much the coming man of the 19th century right. you know he's well educated he you know he has latin and greek um he he has good manners mm-hmm. he knows knows how to behave in in polite society etc cetera, etc cetera. but he's not a he's not an elitist or or, or member of an elite at all and mm-hmm. so he is uh, you know in a way a sort of modern figure you know the that sort of um what would you say, bourgeois intellectual that that we all are, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, he's uh, so it, so that he he does move through different social strata, and he has his ups and downs, and um, but but in a way, it's his his brain power uh, that is his uh, best resource. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the questions which seems sort of central to to the novel is embodied. Um, actually, by a meeting he has in Paris with um, a Russian libertarian called Dmitry Karlinsky. Yes. Uh, and so Karlinsky is a proponent of this idea that a person's uh, nature and character is formed entirely during the first 10 years of um, of his life. And yeah. uh, so Karlinsky says to, to Cashel, you know, there's no escape. I'm sorry. You know, you're, yes. you're stuck with it. And immediately afterwards, we have the, the, the short clause of the next sentence, Cashel disagreed. Yes. Um, and that does seem to be the sort of the, the central tension to the novel in a way, I guess, like how much of our character is set in those early years and in very sort of quite dramatic early years for Cashel yes. and how much control we have over the, the person we ultimately become. Well, it's an, an unending debate. And your Wordsworth said, mm-hmm. the child is father of the man, you know. And um, right. I think my own feeling is that there there probably is some fundamental core of your human nature. Mm-hmm. But my, I, I think we are a series of selves. And this is the way what Cashel feels. Right. He doesn't want to be the person that was enshrined in his first 10 years because it was a lie. It was mm-hmm. false. You know, he was living... Uh, living a lie and so the the idea that he can never shrug that off is abhorrent to him and so he refuses to accept this Russian intellectuals dogma and uh, and proposes another one that actually you can evolve and you can change and that your life's experiences make you a different person you know good or bad you know uh, good experiences or bad experiences that accumulated uh, you know getting of wisdom if you like changes the person you are or allows you to to control uh the, the fundamental person you you are if if you're lucky i mean in cashel's case he doesn't succeed um <laughs> but uh but uh i think that my own feeling about uh you know when you think about yourself or think about myself and um I, I I feel I have changed as I've mm-hmm. as I've lived as I've got older and and things have happened to me and I actually have the I have the evidence of that because I started keeping a diary mm-hmm. very early in my life when I was eighteen or nineteen and I've kept one pretty much ever since and it's you know it's it's interesting to me it's not a not a great <laughs> thought but when I reread the diaries that I had had written when I was 18 or 19, I did not recognize myself. Uh If you'd said to me today, what were you like when you were 
18, 19, 20, I was, oh, I was easygoing, a bit lazy. Mm-hmm. Not a bit of it. The diaries, <laughs> the diaries are evidence of a sort of tormented, um, angry person, angry at myself. I'm constantly insulting myself in these diaries. You fool, you idiot. You know, and so if I hadn't kept the diaries, your memory, which is the most unreliable source for for uh, your own history, um, would have would have been completely wrong. I was a mm-hmm. a rather romantic person, <laughs> aged uh, and, and full of full of you know spontaneity and making mistakes and impulsiveness, uh, and uh, so it, it's it, I, that's I think what. Um, made me believe this idea that somehow we are a succession of selves rather than one self. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't prove it, but my own experience sort of uh, underlines it. And, that, and that's very much the theme of any human heart because yes, Logan Mount Stewart, the character of that, has the same belief. He thinks he's not the same person in his 70s as he was in his 20s. Mm-hmm. And I feel very much the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although the crucial question that I might pose back to you, and which we'd also kind of pose to Cashel, I think, as well, yeah. is not do you recognize yourself in the diaries, but might the people who know you recognize you from today in you from those diaries? Because I think one of the difficulties that Cashel has, there's a moment where he's trying to write his autobiography, is that in fact to 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 encapsulate one's own life and to understand one's own life as a whole. I think you sort of, at the moment, the way you term it is something like to uh, apply a particular ontology to yes. to one's own life and one's own experience is actually, uh, I mean, for, I think for a lot of us, a, a sort of almost almost uh, impossible task. Yes. I and, and that line of Robert Burns, if we could see ourselves as others see us, you know, right. it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, and one of the, one of the few aphorisms I have come up with in my writing life is the, the the last thing you know about yourself is your effect. And I think that's very mm. true. I mean, we are, you know, we are bound in with our own self-knowledge and self-awareness. And very often you'd be very surprised at, at how other people perceive you. Mm. Um, and, uh, and Cashel, while he's writing his, attempting to write his autobiography, he asks his close associate Ignatz and gets completely contradictory <laughs> evidence about his about his behavior and his demeanor. So it's no use at all. Um, but I but I think that you know I think that's true. I mean, the, one's own perception of oneself is often uh, something intensely private, mm-hmm. and um, it doesn't necessarily conform with. Uh, the public face that you present to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we've mentioned that uh, um, you bring in a lot of sort of historical facts from the uh, from the nineteenth century. A lot of historical events. So Cashel is at uh, Waterloo. He goes to work um, for the Honourable East India Company. Uh, he, as you mentioned, meets uh, the Shelleys and meets Byron. One thing that really struck me, and I, you know, I have a cursory, I'd say, knowledge of this period of time. And uh, the book rang very authentically and very well-researched to me. How do you go about researching such a book, which takes place over such an immense period of time? And secondly, once you have done your research or when you're in the process of your research, how bound 
to that research do you feel as a novelist when uh, when constructing the life and the adventures of Cashel? Well, it's very important because I think uh, you know I am a realistic novelist, and I'm I'm con- in the novel, I'm constructing a world peopled with, I hope, three dimensional characters, and so all the work I do, as it were, behind the scenes, is to make that seem totally authentic and totally mm-hmm. plausible, and I do have a huge amount of research, and I I. I you know, buy books, I read books, I use maps, I use photographs a lot as well. Um, But you actually end up discarding 95% of it, -hmm. because otherwise the book would become unwieldy and and, and boring. And and what you're looking for as a novelist, when you're doing research is the opposite of a scholar, or an academic or a historian, you're looking for some nugget of information that will have a to mix my mix the met- metaphors, a ripple effect through right. the through the through the through the book, um, something that that you just casually refer to or throw in, uh, and it sort of does a lot of work for you. And I always quote: "There's a in, in Ulysses, Joyce's Ulysses, mm. Shakespeare and Company. Here we are, um, uh, which is set in 1904." Um, Joyce has Leopold Bloom go into a pub in Dublin and he orders a glass of claret, Bordeaux wine, and a sardine sandwich. That's it, thrown away. I thought, hang about, I know you could do that today, but could Mm -hmm. you do it in Dublin in 1904? And suddenly that pub became absolutely real to me. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't about the price of beer. It was just what an ordinary man on an ordinary day in Dublin would do if he felt a bit peckish and wanted a glass of wine. And suddenly, uh, I, you know, scales fell from my eyes and I right. saw I saw 1904 Dublin in a different way. And so what I'm doing with my research is trying to achieve the same effect, you know, that um, street lighting, you know, gas lighting or oil lighting, you know, that sort of thing. You, you don't want a history of street lighting in your novel. But if the oil lamp at the corner of the street has been blown out by mm-hmm. a wind and he, and Cashel can't find his way home. Uh, <laughs> suddenly you think, oh my God, of course, the streets would have been incredibly dark in 19th century London. And of course, robbers and footpads would have a much easier job robbing you. And um, things like, you know, so that that you sort of want to integrate the facts, the interesting facts you describe into the narrative of your novel in a, in a seamless way that, mm-hmm. and not, you know, often it's to do with what, what somebody has to eat or what somebody's wearing or how long it takes to get from A to B or um, how uncomfortable your, your new shoes were or whatever. You know, it's, it's that sort of detail that makes it seem vivid and alive. And that's mm-hmm. what you're doing. So it's a, it's a kind of magpie um point of view anything that catches your eye is is grist to the mill mm-hmm. <laughs> to, of, of the novel um to mix another metaphor <laughs> and, and when he's he's in direct contact so for example the time he's spending with with byron and shelley for example is it important for you that that the, the, the movements of the poets for example hold up against historically verifiable facts. So, for example, we have Shelley's uh, death on the Don Juan, which is yeah. a, 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 a plot point in the book. Um, and I was just curious because it was something I was reading about uh, a few years ago. And I was trying to remember how close uh, your description 
put while also putting Cashel there was to the sort of let's say historical description yeah. as as I remembered it. Well, it's it's very closely. I mean, it was two hundred years ago, eighteen twenty two. Shelley died. Here we are mm. in, in, oh, in yes, twenty twenty two, and. Um, Shelley is the most most mythologized of the romantic mm-hmm. poets. There was there was no image of him painted in his lifetime. So all the images of him are posthumous. And you've got this fey blonde haired guy with his shirt unbuttoned to his navel, you know, staring dreamily into into space. <laughs> uh, and when I, I I was writing this thesis on Shelley, one of the first things that struck me was that contemporary accounts of him were so different from this image. Uh-huh. Uh, Byron's Byron's young mistress Teresa. Guccioli wrote a very good description of Shelley in 1822 when she or 1820 when she met him, and she said he was very tall, which for the 19th century was significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had very bad skin, so clearly had a lot of acne in, in his youth. <laughs> um, he had incredibly uneven teeth and slightly stooped, but with perfect manners. And suddenly, the image of Shelley that had been presented over the last 200 years was brushed to one side and I thought I thought here's a gangling acne ravaged old Etonian um, <laughs> uh, um, and it somehow seemed more real so in, in my portraits of Shelley and of Byron and of the other real people who pop up in the in in the novel um, I've taken great pains to get to the reality of their mm their personality and their look and to demythologize all the time. And I think Mm -hmm. that, um, uh, you know, I've done a lot of research. Uh, Some of the conclusions I come to are still disputed, but it's a, it's a work of fiction. Uh (laughs) I I have the liberty to put my point of view and, um, but it's, it's very, very carefully researched. I mean, the death of Shelley is a, there's a famous painting of it. He's lying on this, on this buyer on the beach at Via Reggio uh, physically perfectly preserved, but in fact his body was utterly decomposed and mm. rotten because it had been underwater for two and a half weeks and been eaten by fish and crabs and so on. <laughs> so it was a it was a horrible sight, not a romantic sight. And so it's yeah. uh, so I so I just again like to undermine and and, and be realistic about mm-hmm. these things. And in the court, you know, and it's 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 um it's a, a little corrective to the to the myth you know? <laughs> um this passage i'm going to read occurs in 1822 when cashel is 23 and he's traveling through italy trying to write a travel book uh, and he meets the uh shelley household the household of shelley the poet and his wife mary and their child and he's in, he's introduced into their entourage and becomes a friend of the family. And they, in the summer of 1822, the Shelleys uh, rented a villa on the coast of the Gulf of La Spezia near uh, Lerici, the village of Lerici. And the villa was called Casamagni. And they lived there with two friends and their children uh, and their servants, of course. And Cashel, from time to time, would visit them, um, and he would row over from Lerici, where he was staying in an inn, and uh, and spend the day with the the Shelleys and the Williamses, who were the other family. And this is an account of uh, one particular day when he row, rows over unannounced. 
Cashel rode round to the house one afternoon, much later than usual, and receiving no answer to his usual call, beached his boat and went unannounced upstairs to the first floor, where he surprised Shelley and Jane Williams in a passionate kiss, an ardent, full-blooded kiss, Jane's arms tight around his neck. Unobserved, Cashel stood, struck still for a second in the doorway. Shelley's hand was roving vigorously under Jane Williams's skirts as they kissed. Cashel stepped back quietly into the shadow of the landing, but he was instantly aware that Shelley had now seen him. Their eyes connected. Cashel raised a hand, a simple gesture that he hoped was eloquent, as it was meant to convey so much. Yes, I saw what I saw, but I do not judge, and I will tell no one. Then he disappeared quickly down to the beach. Once there he shouted again, lustily, and beat upon a doorpost to announce his specious arrival. Shelley called down to him, and Cashel came up to the terrace to find them both at opposite ends of the long table where they dined. He ignored their evident tense fluster, and chatted breezily about a near miss with the fishing boat that had occurred as he drove his way over. Then, two nights later, Mary Shelley miscarried her three-month fetus and nearly died. It was a tumultuous and highly dangerous situation, by all accounts, with Mary suffering copious bleeding, and only the quick thinking of Shelley, who had plunged her in a bath of iced water, had managed to save her life. But the shock and deep dismay could not be dispelled, and all the apparent harmony in the household fled for good. Cashel missed all the drama as he'd gone back to Pisa, not confident he could maintain the clever act that he was now required to deliver after what he had seen, particularly regarding decent, honest, ignorant Ned Williams. In any event, he had to visit his bank for more funds and needed to retrieve his mail from the post-restant. When he returned to Lerici towards the end of June, everything had changed. Claire Claremont was now staying in the house, and when he quietly suggested a morning swim, she said it was too hot for swimming now. True enough, the June sun was scorching and relentless, but he knew that wasn't the reason. Mary Shelley was now a semi-invalid, mourning another dead child. Only the Williamses were congenial. They were Ned, Jane and Cashel to each other now, but the coldest welcome he received was from Shelley himself. Cashel was on the shore outside the villa, preparing to row himself back to Lerici, when Shelley approached him. Cashel imagined he was going to give him a helping hand to shove the boat out into the lapping waves, but he was immediately aware that Shelley's countenance was stern and hostile. "'What is it, Shelley?' Cashel said. "'Is there a problem?' "'I think you should keep your distance from Miss Claremont,' Shelley said abruptly, his reedy voice rising to a screech when he mentioned her name. "'I don't understand,' Cashel said. "'What do you mean by distance? "'I believe you both go swimming together.' Not at my invitation, Cashel said. Claire, Miss Claremont, asked to join me. I don't think it's seemly. Cashel laughed. I assume that's an attempt at humour, he said dryly. You, of all people, giving advice on what's seemly. She's part of my family, Shelley went on, ignoring the sarcasm. I must look out for her welfare. Cashel was thinking hard now. Who told you we went swimming, he said. Claire herself, she said you swam naked. Cashel understood now. Claire's subtle manipulations were underway. You've been warned, Ross, Shelley insisted. Keep a respectable, proper distance. You want all the women for yourself, do you, Shelley? Cashel said. What do you mean? 
First as Mrs. Williams, as you know I witnessed your unusually fervid embrace, and I've read Miss Claremont's letters to you, and you already have your wife, so, Mary, Claire, and Jane, all for Percy Bish. Shelley had coloured markedly at this, his sun-mottled skin darkening as the blood flushed his features. He was about to speak, but Cashel held up a hand to stop him. I'll hear no more of warnings from you, sir, he said. Miss Claremont is a mature young woman, and indeed a free agent. She may see whomever and do whatever she wishes. Cashel paused. If we choose to swim together, then we shall, and damn you for your insolence. They looked at each other for a second or two in silence. Then Cashel turned and pushed his boat off, and hopped into it, pushing it further out of the door. Good evening to you, Shelley, he raised his voice. I'll gladly leave you to your harem. I won't be troubling you again. Shelley turned away without further word and strode back to Casamani. As he rode back to Lerici, Cashel felt saddened by the hostility of their exchange. He had liked Shelley and responded to his sudden enthusiasms and wild energies, even though he could barely understand the man's poetry, apart from a few short lyrics, he was aware of his active, challenging intellect, his robust questioning of the world and its hierarchies. For a while he thought that the amity was reciprocated, but thinking further, he realised that Lord Byron was now back, close at hand in Leghorn, with his own new ship, the Bolivar, bigger and better than the Don Juan, of course, and when Byron was close by, his looming competitive presence always unsettled Shelley, making him possessive and acrimonious, unusually insecure. Cashel reefed his boat to a bollard on the breakwater at Lerici and wandered gloomily back to his taverna, contemplating an evening of strenuous inebriation, his old friend. It was time to begin to think about packing up and leaving Pisa, he reckoned, time to recommence his wanderings. Some days later, a scribbled note from Claire Claremont was delivered by a servant to the albergo Tinto. It was barely legible. Shelley and Williams lost at sea. The Don Juan sunk in the gulf in a storm. We are all inconsolable. Do not forget us. Do not forget me. In despair. The, what, what little detail which um, I, I rather enjoyed, and I, I checked in with our um, the bookshop's head buyer about this as well, is there's one moment where Cashel is having a conversation with Byron, um, and Byron is speculating on who will survive, Byron yes. or Shelley. Yes. Uh, and Byron is convinced it will be him because he speaks to the heart, to the testicles, yes. to the viscera. <laughs> um, and I, I, I checked in with our uh, head buyer, and uh, yeah. her response was very quick. It's sort of like, well, neither of them compared to Mary Shelley. She's the one that everyone's reading. <laughs> yes. And I just yeah. thought that was an interesting, uh, interesting, yes. appropriate corrective to, of, <laughs> to the of conversation. Of course, you know, Frankenstein, you know, has made her um, immortal in a way. Um, yes, it's true. I mean, it's interesting. Stondahl, to get back to Stondahl, mm. Stondahl met Byron in Venice in the it was 1819, 1820, and deeply disliked him. Thought he was an appalling egomaniac snob, which I thought was quite... A, so that's the Byron, me. <laughs> no, that, that's the Byron in my novel, which I think is very interesting. Because, again, you use the adjective Byronic, you have an mm. image of this, of this guy. It's totally wrong. Um, he was a... He was, uh, you know, a sexual deviant almost, Byron, and uh, he uh, behaved appallingly badly uh, by, by any standards of human behaviour, and uh, and he was a crashing snob. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a more interesting portrait than the the ones that are, are, are you know generally current. Yeah, we uh, the next the next thing I want to talk about is. I'm going to sort of talk around it because I don't want to give too much away for any listeners who haven't yet read The Romantic. Um, But we talked earlier about this sort of uh, your life being defined by certain moments that we talked about the childhood as as carrying a certain weight. Um, Perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, in the case of Cashel, there's another moment where his life is kind of defined. And in a way, he feels um, sort of, yeah, defined and sort of, fixed in a way is when yeah. he falls in love and there's you know he has lots of different relationships during the book but there's one totemic romance for him uh and that does seem to in a way function as kind of a hinge point in his life it doesn't it doesn't stop him uh <laughs> you know continuing on his adventures yes. or having other love affairs but or getting does, married yes. getting married indeed yes, yeah. and yet there does seem to be something at least in his own conviction that this particular moment was as well as, as you write and this was a word i'd never come across i found it so, so nice climacteric Yes, exactly. Yes, it's uh, um, it's true. I mean, I don't think we're giving it. He 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 falls madly in love, passionately, overwhelmingly in love, and then his nature, his romantic nature, causes him to make an epic blunder. He gets it so wrong, and he he mm-hmm. destroys that relationship, um, and very quickly he realizes, as he says himself, he had ruined his life. And in a way, from that moment on, he's in his in his twenties, as an undercurrent to all the other relationships he has in his life. This destroyed uh, true romance um, haunts him, and he tr- and at the end of his life, he tries to make it good and sort of mm-hmm. achieves it. But it's again, it's to do with the title and to do with his nature that. He didn't listen to, he didn't rationalize, he didn't logically think things through. He listened to his heart, he got it wrong, and he totally messed up mm-hmm. his life thereby. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, um, it can happen. <laughs> and, uh, um, and many people can, look, you know, you, the, the view back allows you to see those forking paths in, in your, your own life and how. It, it, how either how lucky you were or how unlucky you were mm-hmm. and how if you'd only done this everything would have been different uh and so and so it is a, it is the wisdom of hindsight but of course at the moment you react as a as a human being whatever human being kind of human being you are and you know sometimes it's disastrous mm-hmm. you know and um casual you know within almost within weeks of re, of this this mistake this crucial error he may realize is that he's done something cataclysmically wrong mm-hmm. and it will it will it will affect his entire life thereafter mm. it's it's interesting because it does bring us back to this idea of how we see things as you say in hindsight or in in retrospect because there's a moment that he does question whether it was the fact that their life their love was unrequited that made it so compelling for him so sort of it, it's all it's almost like had he and in fact his uh lover his former lover observes this very thing it's sort yeah. of like part of the part of the interest if they had stayed together 
his life wouldn't have been the life it was. Her life would have been yes. very different. And, and they probably wouldn't have looked on this love in quite the same way. Yes, I think that's true. And I think it's, uh, it's uh, a kind of potent counter argument in the sense mm-hmm. and Cashel's arguing with himself and saying that possessing something may not be the be all and the end all. It's something out of reach that mm-hmm. um, is more is more empowering or more invigorating than having something you know that is there. And there's this myth that I I quote uh, from Dante's uh, uh, Inferno that the, the two lovers Paolo and Francesca who were actually murdered. It was an illicit love. They were murdered. But their circle of hell is to see each other all the time as they're whirled around by these incredible winds in their circle of hell. But they can never touch. They can never be with Mm -hmm. you. And Cashel begins to see his own life as a kind of version of Paolo and Francesca in Dante's epic poem. And uh, and, But I think at at the end, not giving anything, he does he does get some sort of catharsis, some sort of Mm. resolution and some sort of serenity is arrived at. But there's no doubt that he realizes, as Stondal realized, that his nature was a curse at that stage and he, Mm -hmm. he, um, he, he messed everything up irrevocably. Yeah. We are running out of time. And you just said that uh, a moment ago, you said uh, at the end, not giving anything away. And, I would like to finish with the end while also not giving anything yes, right. away. Um, so I'm going to sort of present something to you and just let you talk about it however much you feel comfortable without ruining anything for our readers. Yeah. But obviously this is a whole life story and we follow Cashel to the end of it. And I don't know exactly what I was expecting with Cashel's demise, but there was something in the um, the way in which it happens and the, let's say, the space it occupies on the page, uh, which was so startling to me as a reader and yet felt so um, sort of authentic as well at the same time. Like sort of, uh, I, I think I was expecting sort of, let's maybe, you know, several pages as sort of yes. as life left him. And that and that isn't what we get. And I think there was that must be tempting in a way once you've written 400, 500 pages mm. of somebody's life to just linger on that moment when that life expires. And, 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 and you don't. Yes. And I think that's possibly because in my three previous whole life novels, The New Confessions, <laughs> Sweet Caress and uh, Any Human Heart, I, I had done exactly that, that it, it is sort of drawn out and, and, and the, the characters contemplate their end in a kind of, serene way and mm-hmm. so I decided I mean Cashel does achieve a kind of serenity uh, at the end of his life and a kind of uh, wisdom in a way mm-hmm. a realization about what is truly important in life in the relationships between two people um, but of course and he's he's he thinks everything's going to be okay but i think but the i take i think it's a very good point adam that it is sudden and, and shocking but then you i think you get uh in the last pages of the novel um a kind of objective view of mm. his his burial in fact um and the tone of those pages is is meant to to, in a way, um, replace any ah. 
cogitations that the the man himself <laughs> might have had on his deathbed. So it's so I do feel that the 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 last two or three pages of the of the novel give you that um, mm. catharsis that the kind of brute shock of, of <laughs> this death. <laughs> Uh, doesn't you know? Yeah, but let's uh, let's say no more. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, about yeah. that, um, William. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you today. I had, I'm sure, it's come across in this conversation. I had such fun with uh, with with Cashel uh, over the last uh, the last week or so when I've been been reading the book. The Romantic is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company from our bricks and mortar store. We have piles of it uh, in the shop at the moment. It's also available from our website. Or, of course, from your local independent bookstore, wherever wherever you may be based. Uh, all that remains for me to say is, William Boyd, thank you so, so much for joining us today. No, great fun. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>